us hear the word of God as it is recorded for us in the book of Romans chapter 10 and reading verses 5 through 13. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are acquitted, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. May God bless to our understanding and to our blessing his word this morning. Let us pray together. Your majesty, we worship you in the infinite perfection of your being. We who scarcely understand time and remotely understand space, how then can we approach and understand infinity? So thank you, great God, that you found a way to commune and communicate with us and the word became flesh. And now we trust we trust our time into your safe keep keeping. Our lives are defined by divine appointment. Sometimes, Lord, it's so satisfying as to grab our full attention, and sometimes it's so bewildering that we doubt. We occupy the space that you ordain for us and it is alive with your presence, with interest, and with opportunity. We thank you for examples where people who have been confined by space and time and have been confined in their bodies, some of them just in their heads, have lived meaningful lives that have far exceeded the richness that they might have had with full 
with the full use of their bodies. They were not trapped, but rather they were liberated. And they reflect themselves that it was good and their lives are richer uh, for the entrapment that others think that they had. So we thank you that although our time and space dimensions are not that well understood, your word is sure. And you are the one who says, fear not, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, they will not overflow you. And when you go through the fire, it will not kindle upon you. You are mine, for I have redeemed you. So divine majesty, thank you that we may step back into who you are and discover a new context for life and a different light on the horizon simply because you are infinite not just in the perfection of your being but also in your love, your mercy and your grace. Thank you for saying yes to us and we respond with an amen and even that is prompted by you. Amen, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning as we think about the scriptures, um, if you were listening carefully, you would have heard a reference to ascending and descending. And that made me think about a rock and a hard place. And I invite you to think of the times when you have been between a rock and a hard place. In fact, as I know that a good number of people right now are in between a rock and a hard place. And what our scripture this morning is going to bring to you is the good news that a rock is not a hard place. So that will be the paradigm or the metaphor that we will be using this morning and in order to bring it home to you, I hope with the power of the Holy Spirit, here is a picture of a dramatic rock. This is El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. It is over 3,000 feet from base to top. It is a mass, a single mass of solid rock virtually sheer, and virtually vertical. Here is another picture of it. And no, uh, I haven't photoshopped this and it doesn't need correcting to reorientate the horizon. This is a picture of the rock, which would be the view that a rock climber has, a rock climber has to his right and to his left. That's what he would see. A very ironic twist uh, attaches to El Capitan. David Hahn is one of the greatest guides of Mount Everest. He's been literally to the top of the world more times than I have toes and fingers. 
at 29,000 and I think 31 feet, uh, often the altitude that a passenger jet flies at. But believe this or not, but David Hahn is afraid of heights. <laughs> Go figure. Well, a bunch of his friends devised this plan. They would send him and take him 3,000 feet up El Cap, and uh, that would cure him of his fear of heights. And this is the route that they would negotiate. The result, he said, was uh, panic attacks and cold sweat. (laughs) Here's a picture of him taken from above. You notice the hammock uh, attached to the rock wall indicating that he'd spent the night there, probably spent four or five nights on the, the rock face in order to climb it. And the chasm below is so vast that it appears black as if it was a picture taken uh, from a space capsule. As we then anchor our thoughts in this idea of the rock being a hard place, let me remind you what this story of Romans is and that locates you in a hammock on a rock face. The message that God made clear should have the same impact on you. Paul, remember, reminded us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the majesty of God, the Creator. And he said that if we are in any way whatsoever to have any communion with God, we need to understand the infinite majesty of God. This is something that is innate in every person. If you explore the great religions of the world, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, all the various sets of animism, every one of them has a standard of moral perfection. And it has a path of virtue that you should practice in order to engage with the infinite. So it's universal. It's universal even in the conversations that you have with your neighbors and friends and maybe in non-spiritual moments with yourself inside your head. When you say to them or to yourself, well, you know, I've done the best I can and nobody can expect more that of me. Or you say, I've always lived by the golden rule. Or you say, I have been a regular church member. And you point to the things you have done and the things you are doing. And that you feel is sufficient for this whole issue of seeking the path of virtue and connecting with the infinite. So that, in a sense, places you on a rock in a hard place because God is infinite. The second way in which we find ourselves on this rock is that Romans then goes on to describe the dilemma but proceeds also to explain the impact of trusting God in an individual's life. 
And so the Apostle Paul will take us through the whole issue of our own deficiency in terms of infinite morality. And then he will demonstrate that Christ died for sinners. And out of that he will say, you have peace and there's joy in your life. You live in the place of access to God. In other words, God is always around you and you're in his presence all the time. And he will talk about the hope of your life and the significance. So even when you go through suffering, you know that there's some plan behind it. And then he's going to talk about the presence of God helping us in our weakness and the Holy Spirit bringing the sense that we are not ever condemned to us. But right in the middle of it, in Romans chapter 7, he's got this experience that he refers to when he says, the good things I want to do, I find I'm not doing them. And the evil things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing them. And this dilemma then is his explanation of him being on the rock in a hard place. And he cries out in anguish, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So that's also part of the normal Christian experience. So we've got to ask ourselves in the light of that, uh, is this whole gospel which we call good news, all these things about God delivering us and peace and joy and hope and satisfaction and significance and all of that, is God just making idle promises as if he were a politician hoping for re-election? And that, of course, is a very real and difficult question which places all of us, either as seeking to neck connect with God for the first time or else seeking to live a life of connection with him right on the rock face in a hard place. Let's put that a bit graphically and uh, here we have our search for God. You can put your name where I've got the word you. You might put there this is Anton's search for God and put your name in there as well. And what that means is that there is a spiritual component to every life on earth. Even those who deny they have a spiritual component, here you go, I'll prove that they do. All alike are searching for reality. Atheists themselves are looking to explore the universe. Every person I know at some poignant moment in their lives, usually what you might call the 3 a.m. wide awake moment, wonders about who they are and asks inside their heads at least, what does it all mean? And here are the symptoms that afflict us in this spiritual search. Every person I know aspires to a life of meaning. Nobody wants to live a meaningful life and 
go down into the grave saying, well, nothing was accomplished, there was no meaning, no purpose, it doesn't even matter that I existed. And that leads into the idea of significance. There is a longing in every person for peace and for joy and for connectedness and for satisfaction. We all wonder about the significance of life. God brings those moments to us. Maybe when we hold our newborn babies in our arms or when we walk alongside our parents as they are dying or when good friends of ours die or when the phone rings and the doctor says I've got bad news for you and then we are universally inspired by the tales of courage that we hear and see and read Uh, Universally, we are inspired by people that overcome adversity, by heroes who sacrifice themselves for others. And we are universally repulsed by injustice. The worse the injustice, the greater the revulsion within us. And when you take all of that and bundle it together and then label it, the label that best fits is spirituality. You are on a search for the transcendent in your life. Or if you want to put that in a more biblical way, you are looking for God. And where will you find him? And of course, somebody on this rock face is going to say, well, you know, I'm actually okay. You know, I think I'm going to make it. Here are some pictures of another rock climber's dream. This one is half dome on the two top pictures. There's also the two bottom pictures. Also in Yosemite, this sheer wall is a mere 2,130 feet, peanuts, compared to El Cap. In 1957, a man with the wonderful name of Royal Robbins decided that it was time that somebody climbed Half Dome, and he put together a team of expert climbers, and they developed over months specialized equipment to climb. Uh, The ropes that had enough elasticity and enough strength to serve the function of breaking their falls. specialized lugs and pitons that could be wedged into cracks or drilled into the rock face and the rope looped through uh, the, the various climbing equipment. And off they went laden with special equipment and the world held its breath for five days as this team laboriously made their way up the face of Half Dome. Camping out on the face in little hammocks as we saw in the case of Dave Hahn and eventually this perfect drama amazed the world and the world heaved a sigh of relief when they eventually conquered Half Dome. Well, in 2009, Alex Hunnell, who is a free solo climber, here he is here, And there he is hanging there by his fingertips, 
Free solo means he goes without any equipment. No ropes around his shoulder, no bag of pitons hanging here, no little hammer to hammer his lugs into the rock face. His fingers and a special rubberized pair of shoes and a chalk bag and off he goes. He climbed half dome in under three hours. So you're saying to me, you see it can be done. I could get a team together and we can get the equipment and support one another. Or maybe Alec Hunnell will show me the techniques and that could be me hanging there. <laughs> Here he is again. Look, just chalk on his hands, nothing else. And he goes up as if he was a fly on the wall. Yep, it can be done, we say. Well, there's only one problem. The small matter of infinity. <laughs> 2,100 feet, 3,000 feet, it's less than an atom in terms of the actual distance of infinity. So that's what the Apostle Paul means in the scripture reading when he says, those who want to choose this route, go for it. You're going to live by it. You're going to live camped out on the rock in a hard place. And even though you might make it to 3,000 feet, you haven't even begun yet because the rock just goes on. For God is infinite. And of course, we all have this instinctive and even innate knowledge, but we set it all aside because it presents this dilemma that we cannot resolve. I've got to get up there, but I don't know how to get up. So I'll tell you what, I'll just push it out of my mind and I'll just adapt. And I want to ask you if you're just in the adapting mode this morning. This is how it happens. Uh, when Shando and I got married just over 45 years ago, we went one day and saw a little semi-detached house we could afford and we put down the deposit and we went off on honeymoon and when we came back we moved into this little semi-detached house and went to sleep blissfully. Uh, honeymoon was still sort of in progress. <laughs> And the next morning at 4 a.m., the house started to shake on its foundations. The door rattled as if there was a burglar trying to get in, and all the windows were shaking in the window frames. And we sat up in bed and looked at each other with wide eyes and said, What is going on? Dashed to the window, and there was a bus laden with workers, 4 a.m., going to work. And the diesel of the engine and the laboring of this bus up the little hill outside our window shook our entire house. And we said, what have we done? Because two minutes later, there was another bus and then another one. And it never stopped. And we went to work groggy and with our eyes baggy. And we came home and fell into bed and said, oh no, 4 a.m., is coming again. Well, do you know what? By the second week, we needed an alarm clock to waken us. Because we adapt. 
So you may have adapted to your place there, and I'm praying and have prayed yesterday and again this morning, God, shake my foundation. Rattle the windows of everybody in the congregation. Make us aware of where we are so that we can find a solution and not simply adapt. And here's the solution that God gives us. Rather than seeking to climb the rock ourselves, he says, put your faith in Christ. And so our passage said, in opposed to those who want to have a righteousness by the law, we can have an acquittal and a relationship by faith. Because as you remember in the passage scripture, it said, Jesus is the one who did descend down into the grave. He is the one who ascended into heaven. And so as we think about relating to God, we don't have to go there ourselves, for Jesus went for us. And at this point, the conversation takes another quirky turn. Do you remember the first quirk was we say, I'm good enough, I live by the golden rule. Here's the second quirk, and this is, part of my ongoing conversation with people over four confident con- continents <laughs> stretching over 50 years, people sit back and say, it's too simple. Really? What would you like? If God said to you, run a marathon, you'd feel that would be something worthwhile. Well, yes, I could get my teeth into it. I could go to the gym. I could get some training. I can run with someone who would time me and second me. I could do that. That would be a great solution. And then I say, and if the requirement was that you run the marathon in under 30 minutes, the world record's two hours and eight minutes, Well, they say, that's impossible. Ah, you got the point. (laughs) It's impossible. You cannot scale the infinity of God. You cannot achieve the moral perfection. So now God says, here's the solution. Jesus, our Lord, will go to the the grave, be resurrected, ascend into heaven, and now offer you his time for the marathon or his free soloing of the rock, and you can put it to your account. So the key is faith. And what exactly is faith? Well, here's a nice simple way of thinking about it. There are many ways, but this one will suffice for this morning. Faith is Forsaking all, I take him. You'll notice there are two elements. There's a forsaking element and a taking element. Forsaking means that you let go. You let go of all your own efforts. You let go of all your own solutions. You let go of your own abilities because they're not going to get you very far anyway. And here's another one. You let go of all the bad stuff in your life. Your fears. Your guilt. Your shame. Your anxiety. Your bewilderment. 
your frustration, all your questions. You can still ask them, but they don't have to torment you, so you let them go in the moment of faith. You bundle them all up, and you toss them over the edge of your hammock. What a great feeling. You dump it. And then you take him. Well, how do I do that exactly, you ask? And the Apostle Paul says, well, it's actually very simple. The word of faith is actually in your mouth. You don't have to say who will descend because Jesus already done that. You don't have to ask who will ascend because he's already done that. So now you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of God the Father. And now you say, Jesus is Lord. That's the word of redemption. So it's a simple thing, isn't it? But man, has it got massive implications. It's like that little phrase, I do. And us guys, we think that when we said I do, it means I did it. So you come back from the honeymoon and you say, well, honey, I'm going off to the pub with the guys tonight. And she says, I'm coming with you. <laughs> and you say, you what? Yes, I did it means I'm doing it. I'm forsaking my single ways forevermore and I am going to live in communion with you and Jesus, you are Lord of my life. So it's simple, but it's also hard. A friend of mine joined the Salu Scouts in Rhodesia. That's like the Navy SEALs in the USA when we lived in Harare or Salisbury. And he said to me that the, the instructions came through the mail, assemble on the parade ground in the center of the city and bring all your stuff. So they arrived with suitcases and duffel bags on wheels and backpacks and under the arm was a shopping bag of special mementos and under this arm was not a teddy bear, no self-respecting self man go to bed with a teddy bear so it's a stuffed lion. And they said, put it all on the bus. So they fill the luggage racks and they fill the luggage compartments and they've still got stuff on their laps and off they go in the bus. And the bus pulls to a stop and the sergeant major says, get off and take all your stuff with you. So they unpack everything. And then he says, as the bus roars off in a cloud of dust and burping diesel fumes, pick up your stuff Base camp is 20 miles away, and the last one in gets kitchen parade, KP duty for a week. So with a sinking feeling of lead in their guts, they pick up their stuff, and it's all over, and they start running. And within a mile, much to the, the delight of the local population, they've got to decide, what am I going to let go of? Well, this suitcase hasn't got wheels. There goes the suitcase. 
and they run another half mile and they're still laboring and struggling. What's next? Well, this, this duffel bag, it can go. And gradually as they run, they shed themselves of all the stuff. And they arrive just in their running shoes and the clothes they're wearing and they are liberated men because they realize all the stuff was actually junk. And that's something of the process that happens in the Christian experience, isn't it? We say, I do to Jesus. He said yes to us, and we say, I do, and off we go. And we've got all this junk in our lives, but we think it's valuable and that it's worth keeping. And he's saying, you can throw it overboard because it's just stuff. It's actually junk. And he is refining our lives. And the other thing that he's doing is he's testing this little thesis of Jesus is Lord. And so uh, if you're anything like me, you wake up one day and back in the hammock on the rock face, there's my worry again and some anxiety about my son just lost his job and then I'm worried about my boss and all these things come cramming in so I chuck them overboard again and I've forgotten there's a bungee cord attached to them. The next thing they slap me in the face and they back in the hammock and I say, well, you know, I've been a Christian now for over 50 years. I can handle this. I know how to do this. And so I set off looking for a handhold on a glass face of an infinite rock. And I'm such a dummy, it usually takes me a day or two to realize what I'm doing. And then I've got to say, Jesus is Lord. And forsake all of that and take him again. And let's assume that the thing that smacked me in the face was, uh, say, let's say, my fear of death. And I say, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus says, I've been to the grave, and I am alive forevermore. Oh, Jesus, that's a novel thought. Thank you. And then I'm concerned about something else, and I say, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus says, well, yes, I am Lord. I am sovereign. I have your future in my hands. Oh, I can relax. And whatever I See, as the issue and the problem, when I say Jesus is Lord, I bring him into the picture as Lord, and we go together. And all the time, he's already finished the journey, so it's not as if I still have to make it, but he's with me as I proceed. That's the story of becoming a Christian and that's the story of continuing as a Christian. Oh, woe is me, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me? Jesus is Lord. I'm going to give you a moment to dredge up all your own hard places and circumstances and say, in your heart, believe in your heart and say, you can whisper it or just say it inside your head, 
Jesus, you my Lord. Let us all pray together.